If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? Recent trials have shown that this podcast is over 94% effective at making your daily walk more interesting. <laughs> and the other 6% is when Ian is talking about comics. I'm the Chief Exec of Best Written, Naomi Smith, and I'm here to remind you that the next Oh God, What Now? live Zoom is tonight, this very night, Thursday, 25th of February, if you're a Patreon backer. And if you're not, well, it was last night. But if you back us on Patreon, you can get exclusive live video and audio when it goes up this weekend. Meanwhile, back in the present, I've got three of our regulars with me this week. Roz Taylor is editor at the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hello, Roz. Hello, Naomi. Uh, Roz, we're going to be talking about um, the unlocking roadmap later. Uh, But COVID news, of course, continues to be pretty mixed. Um, America passed a horribly grim milestone with over half a million deaths this week. But then the first real world research on vaccines uh, in Scotland has been incredibly encouraging. Is it is it too simple to say that in the UK, at least we're turning the corner? Um, it's probably more accurate to say that we're going round a bend um, so that we can, <laughs> we can see more and more of the road ahead. But the act of going round the bend is in itself a bit dangerous. Um, but I'm very hopeful for a number of reasons, actually. What is that vaccine take up in this country has really been very, very good. I mean, it's 95% in the over 80s at the moment. And refusal is much lower than expected. It really is getting quite antisocial in many circles not to get a vaccine. The mayor was asking today, why should we all be held hostage by the one in five who refuse a vaccine? Which from the paper that helped to publicise um, anti-vax uh, misinformation quite a while ago is is, is promising. Yeah. We do need to tackle hesitancy in some minority communities, but that is being recognised as a problem and that they're acting on it. And all the evidence suggests that vaccines reduce transmission as well as stopping people getting very ill and dying from COVID. And that is the best outcome we could have hoped for, really. They have been rolled out fast in this country and they appear to be working. And so, you know, with the... Um, with 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 all the usual provisos, I am quite optimistic about this, and you know I'm planning to moonlight for perhaps another co- podcast called Reasons to Be Cheerful, if you if you like. <laughs> uh, but honestly, this is this is going well, and we don't need to be as downbeat as some people I think sometimes are being. Well, I for one can't wait to get my little prick. So yeah, very much looking forward to it. Um, Minnie Rahman is Public Affairs and Campaigns Manager at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Welcome, Minnie. Hi, Naomi. 
Your response to the roadmap was, thank God there is a countdown for when everyone can stop (laughs) pretending they like going for runs. Uh, Have you not been taking advantage of your mandated government exercise, Minnie? (laughs) That probably wasn't the most professional response to a government announcement. But look, this is a very sensitive topic for me because I am really missing the gym and swimming. And also, I'm so awful at running that I can't believe people are really enjoying it. And I'm really looking forward to no more joggers (laughs) all over the pavement, not keeping their two metres distance from me. Oh, they are the worst, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. So I think I'm hopeful for the end of the running renaissance. Good, me too. I did, I confess I did couch to 5k in the first lockdown. And I've I've probably done the reversal of whatever that is in this one, you know, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, um, In other news, um, and in fact, it's sort of big, big news coming out of Wolverhampton. Robert Jenrick uh, says the Department of Housing is going to be the first uh, government headquarter move outside of London. Uh, what can the nation's civil servants expect from the the bloom of the black country? What kind of phrases are they going to have to get used to hearing? <laughs> I mean, I think there's a lot of kind of colloquialisms and much better accents than mine that people are going to be exposed to. But I'm I'm actually really excited to see how the people of the black country respond to the nation's <laughs> civil servants. Um, there's some really great things about the black country. There's cheaper housing, um, less culture, although the black country museum is a joy. And you can actually... <laughs> um, you can run or cycle or walk from the black country to Birmingham along the canal. So it's not too oh, far from nice. the bigger city life. And most importantly, there is a massive Ikea. A massive what? <laughs> Ikea. Ikea. Well, there we go. They can kit out their lovely good value properties with uh, lovely Swedish good value furniture. Um, also here, editor at large in charge of politics.co.uk. It's Ian Dunt. Hi, Ian. Hello. Uh, it was Brexit a Game of Thrones week again uh, with Frosty, David Frost, being appointed to Cabinet to lead future trade talks with the EU. Um, now, it, it sounds like he's getting Gove's old job, but is now going to be reporting to Gove. What, what does all this mean? How do you think it's going to work? We don't know. They're too, it, it's all in a state of odd flux with these various sort of factions leveling up against each other and like so you know go was surrounded by people like sort of Simone Finn or Henry Newman people who are typically friends with Carrie Simmons who you know either used to work with him or are quite loyal towards him who are meandering around the side you also have David Frost coming in we had a previous wobble with Oliver Lewis these are two guys I mean if you look at David Frost and Oliver Lewis these are guys who are very vote levy, you know, whether it's organisation or just the, the headspace that they operate in, the manner in which they conduct themselves. It's all quite tough, bruisey, let's get tough with Scotland, let's get tough with EU. Um, that really hasn't been the approach that, that Gove has had. I mean, Gove is a weird figure, right? Because he's, you know, just ostentatiously polite. But you can tell by the people that he hires. I mean, for instance, fucking Dominic Cummings, when he was in the Department of Education, who were very stabby. That the politeness is not reflective of his inner uh, disposition, and and yet when he also it's worth saying that you know some of the most appalling Orban type statements in British politics have come from Michael Gove, you know, whether it's tax yeah. and media. And you know or- what, he wasn't always polite. I remember seeing um, that thing he did in the nineties when he was on TV, and some of the pretty atrocious stuff he used to say about uh, the royal family. Oh wow! Really? Which, which, who, who you love, you see. So I thought you, you, might, yes, you no, might want imagine. to know. I just <laughs> simply will not take that kind of insult. I mean, Brexit was one thing, Michael. Um, 
And, and yet, like, so his talks with the EU mostly are sort of really quite civil. And his approach towards, say, the Scottish question was also kind of kill him with kindness kind of things. You know, what 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 could be done with the devolution? What could be done in yeah. the cabinet around this? So you get, ultimately, this comes down to sort of tough versus a bit softer approaches. And it doesn't feel like Downing Street has yet got an answer, either in the Scottish question or the EU question, about the kind of approach that it wants to take. Because the, the government's union czar uh, quit after just two weeks, and it was it was Gove that was being blamed for that ousting. Uh, how much of a mess are the uh, number 10 in at the moment over over the breakup of the union? I mean, I was uh, listening to a, a, a webinar last night with Ed Balls and others and Joe Johnson, and they were saying, how can you go forth and want to be global Britain when domestic Britain is crumbling, the union's falling apart? Yeah, I mean, it's look, the only thing I think we can say right now with certainty is that they definitely don't know what they're doing. Because if you if they did, if they had an approach that they were really trying to follow, you wouldn't have see you wouldn't see that churn of personnel going on. We've basically had in the space of a few weeks, Gove in charge, out of charge, back in charge again. Now that tells you that they do not have a clear idea of their approach. Current rumors are that Boris Johnson is softening on what he's going to do if, uh, as expected, the SNP come back with a big mandate in the upcoming elections. That seems to me a complete political inevitability. So we're sailing into the situation where the likelihood is that the votes come in for that referendum to be held and the British government doesn't have a very clear idea of how to fight it and Labour doesn't seem to have a voice in Scotland either. On this week's show, we think we're done with the sofa, we think we're done with the hall, we think we're done with the kitchen table, baby. Let's go outside. We know you want to, but you can't say yes until you've been vaccinated. Are the government's unlocking plans realistic? And what's going to happen if and when they go wrong? Plus, elephants in the room in the eye of the COVID and Brexit storms, it's easy to forget about all the other issues we should be tackling. So we're each going to pick a major area of concern that's been obscured by COVID and Brexit and say what needs to be done about them. And in this special extra bit for Patreon backers, we'll be asking, is space the place? With NASA's Perseverance rover landing on Mars, should we look to the stars and away from a world already doomed to a climate catastrophe or try and fix Earth before going off and ruining other worlds? You can get the extra bit plus the whole podcast early and without adverts and our coveted merchandise too if you back us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast to find out how. Your contribution is going to keep us in vegan chocolate and will eventually fund our move to Wolverhampton. (laughs) Now don't come knocking when the country's unlocking. On Monday, Boris Johnson announced a four-step reopening process for England. Shops, pubs and gyms will be back after the 12th of April under the plans. Another date that set hearts racing is, of course, June 21st, when nightclubs could open their doors again, with many vowing to turn trendy East London party spots into a war zone. Meanwhile, Scotland plans to open shops, bars, restaurants, gyms and hairdressers from the end of April. Roz. I'm pretty sure you're going to be relieved to hear that all school pupils will return on March the 8th with secondary students wearing masks in lessons. But why just them? Why only high school pupils? I mean, they're, and also, you know, they're not, they're not particularly famous about being compliant and uh, abiding by rules. Well, the reason is that uh, older children, teenagers, are much more likely to catch and spread COVID. So it makes sense for them to be the one wearing, ones wearing masks. In addition, it's really quite hard sometimes, not always, to get younger children to wear masks, not to rip them off 
Um, I've been trying to persuade my eight-year-old to wear one occasionally, although I don't have to, and he is extremely, extremely resistant. Uh, they can find them very uncomfortable. So it makes it makes sense from an epidemiological point of view. And what about the teaching unions? Um, they, they seem to be quite concerned about this. Is that legitimate? There is, there is always t- cause for concern. The thing we have to ask ourselves as a society is what we want to prioritise. And last year, the answer to that for Boris Johnson was shops and pubs, which opened before most, the vast majority of children went back to school. And in the US and the Philippines and countries uh, in Latin America particularly, we're still seeing this terrible situation where you have private childcare open and private schools open and public schools are still shut. And for many of them, there's not even the prospect of them opening fully in September, despite Joe Biden's efforts. I mean, it's a terrible situation. It really is just a massive inequality. That's a year and a half of learning that these kids are losing. And reopening schools, it's a social justice issue. It's because the harms of closing schools are so multifaceted on, on learning on socialising, on women in particular who are losing their jobs because they have to look after children. And it's always worse for the poorest. The Department for Education put out a report today saying the poorest have lost 50% more learning than, than, than other children. And I've been really dismayed sometimes by the way this debate has played out in Britain, because wanting schools to be open is sometimes described as pilloried as being anti-lockdown and as being reckless. And the support, uh, inverted commas, of people like the ghastly Julia Hartley Brewer, who has sort of co-opted schools into her anti-lockdown position, Mm. that doesn't help. It really hasn't helped at all. It also hasn't helped that Gavin Williamson is so fucking useless and puts up the backs, rightly, of so many teachers. That That has been very, very harmful as well. But it would be great if this was not becoming a left-right debate because it is a really important thing to get kids back in school. And it is difficult for teachers. I wish teachers had been vaccinated before they went back into the classroom again. That would certainly have helped. But if when we're thinking about what to reopen first, I'm just so glad that it's schools. I have seen, I've seen my eight-year-old struggle to play and you can't use that word with other kids on zoom and it's just tragic Mm. it's been the times when I've actually lost it and I've cried during these lockdowns is when I've seen that and I've just been so upset about it uh it's 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 just it's awful so I I'm glad that we have changed since last summer and I'm glad that our priorities are different and I'm desperately hoping that we're not going to fall into a situation like we did last autumn where we have outbreaks and we have self-isolation and they're losing even more even more learning. Uh, Boris Johnson has started talking about vaccine passports uh you know previously the government had sort of poo-pooed that idea now they seem to be coming back into the lexicon uh, and these being used to enter pubs theatres travel do you think this is realistic talk have you got any concerns uh, about private companies having access to health data? This is a massive U-turn by Johnson because he did actually say only a week or two ago, oh, there's no way that you'll have to have proof of anything to get into a pub. And now he's Which saying, was when we knew it was almost certainly going to have yes. to happen. <laughs> yes. Um, it's, now very, it's now a very realistic possibility. Uh, there seems to be a prospect that you will only be able to go to the pub if you have either a negative COVID test or have been vaccinated. Maybe it will be up to individual pubs and people will choose which pub to go to accordingly. I can well imagine, for example, Weatherspoons just letting everybody 
everybody in, but yeah. kind of other different pub chains saying, no, we're only going to let people in if they have proof. It could be a good incentive to encourage people to get their shots. So I, I think it's also when you've been vaccinated, it shows up on your NHS app on your mobile phone. And it will be quite easy, I think, on that basis for people to to prove that they have uh, been vaccinated. It might be more difficult for tests. For international travel, that's going to be totally inevitable. Uh, that will make family holidays potentially quite challenging because, of course, kids aren't being vaccinated, but nobody seems to have quite woken up to that fact yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, England might just be full of abandoned children as parents <laughs> flee to the south of France. <laughs> <laughs> that has occurred to me yet. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ian, the 21st of June has been earmarked for the reopening of venues, including nightclubs, uh, and you know we can already picture those scenes. Um, is it realistic to imagine that we can get transmission rates lower enough for that to happen i mean dare we dare we dream of getting sweaty at fabric i got a bit lost yeah when you mentioned it because i was sort of i think there, there was a part of me that was thinking you know when this is over i'm going to grab life by the neck i'm going to do it <laughs> and i just think like the thing is it has been well over a decade since i've wanted to get put in a club and realistically that won't change but maybe <laughs> that first night might actually be worth going for you'd be like wow there's going to be a a lot of a lot of very sweaty hugging going on in that room. <laughs> um, I mean, the thing is, it doesn't count, right? Because that, it, it, infections isn't even what they're fucking measuring. Like, they're me- they're re- the metric that they're really going for is hospitalizations. Yeah. So you've got to frame it around like a more... Because like, th- th- this was a marked improvement from anything we've seen for the government outside of vaccines throughout the whole pandemic. It was much more cautious. Like it was really, really very positive that they have these big gaps in between stages so you can see what the effect of the previous stage is. It's really good there was that that real focus on outside rather than inside. You know, we keep on yeah. talking about the, the washing hands, and blah, 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 but actually the core thing really has been ventilation being outside or inside, which we weren't seeing recognition of last summer. And now it's, it seems to be properly baked into to, to the plan. However... Ultimately, they're tracking hospitalizations, not infections. And that is this, this problem that they've had all the way through of thinking, well, you can tolerate a certain amount. As, as long, long as, as we don't know. overwhelm the NHS, we can exactly. still put huge pressure on it. Yeah. Exactly. And they're still in that headspace, you know, and that's yeah. not enough. I mean, and the reason it's not enough, I mean, obviously, we, we talk about long COVID. Mm. This is like a major thing that we really do not talk enough about. But crucially, variant. I mean, yeah. the, the variant issue, like the way it was explained to me was um, it's, you know, there's a very small chance of the virus mutating when, when, when it catches you. However, so it's like, you know, a lottery ticket. But if you buy, you know, 30 million lottery tickets, you actually have a pretty fucking good chance of winning the lottery. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's the scenario where it can get out from under the vaccine. So every infection is an opportunity for mutation. And on that basis, you would want them to be looking at infections mm-hmm. rather than hospitalizations. And that's not what we see in that plan. Now, the uh, COVID resurgence group, uh, as I like to call them, the CIG, <laughs> demanded all restrictions should go once the top nine priority groups have been vaccinated, which should be about a month earlier. So en- end of May. But I mean, those new dates are probably only going to be put put back, not forward. I mean, how much will the knives be out for Johnson from them? If, if dates change and, and lockdown doesn't happen as quickly as, as Johnson has set out? I mean, on the, on the positive side, they do feel weaker than they did sort of, you know, in the, in the latter stages of last year. On the sort of more difficult side, 
they have got very prominent supporters. You know, they might be a minority in the country. They might be a minority in parliament, but they've got really prominent supporters. I mean, for a start, you see, Jacob Rees-Mogg was kind of, he could see him flirting with them the other day mm-hmm. when he said, um, he said, uh, obviously, all, you know, all governments operate according to a certain amount of flexibility, which is just like, no, no Jacob, that's not what that document fucking said. That was not talking about flexibility. It was talking about, no, we're actually going to be very cautious and very firm here. Um, if you look at the editorials in the Daily Mail, I mean, we spend a lot of time, right, talking about, you know, the Toby Youngs and the Alison Pearsons and all that. You look at the, the recent editorial in the Mail, it was basically saying, just open that fucker up now. You know, these are major newspapers in this country, influential in government which are pushing this line very, very strongly indeed. And it's mm. sort of one of those paradoxes that the better things get with the vaccines, the more these dimwits suggest that you need to open up on that basis, when in fact yeah. it's at the exact moment that you do not want to be doing that if you're going to be successful. Oh, and they would oh, fucking oh, know oh. that, by the way, if they'd spent more than five minutes looking at the fucking information rather than just reacting to every sort of like half-thought-out emotional instinct that has ever erupted into their tiny heart. <laughs> Minnie, you know, what's your view on Johnson? You know, because he's saying he's very confident about these restrictions all being lifted by the 21st of June. But do you think, therefore, that that's a guarantee that we're probably still going to be in lockdown come August? Or are you going to, you know, tear tear up the country on the 21st and party away? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm really kind of head and heart conflicted on this. I mean, I don't think there is any person in the country who could or should put a hard deadline on a return to normality. Um, And we know this government loves hard deadlines, but he hasn't done that. But that is the way that it feels and feels to me like it's being interpreted. He set out an expectation and we all know that they don't have a good track record on things like this. Mm. You know, Christmas was just two months ago. We don't have a whole new government that's learned from their mistakes. It's still the same government. So I'm not putting absolute faith in anything that he says but I think that the plan is good I think it's good that each stage is assessed and that they're putting kind of five weeks in between the stages um but you know there are so many moving parts here so my approach is cautious optimism I I can see how unhelpful it is to be a complete and utter pessimist both for myself and for everyone around me um and I think you know we're coming to the end of a really long and, and horrible journey and the end is in sight so I want to have something to look forward to. So I'm definitely booking my mates in for the 21st. Um, but I guess I'll just kind of reassess my position closer to the time. Um, and what about students? And do you think they're going to reassess things? Because at the moment, the 12th of April is the earliest that university students will know if they can have in-person teaching or not. But do you think we could see students sort of choosing not to return in September, even if the COVID situation is much better based on everything they've had to endure over the last 18 months or so? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure whether students will choose not to return because I think a lot of them will still want to have that more kind of traditional experience of a university education and getting away from home. And and arguably any students who've been locked down with their parents for a year will want that more Mm -hmm. than the ones um, who've kind of been stuck in university accommodation. Uh, To me, it kind of feels like the same questions that apply to our kind of new working from home conditions and how much that will stick um, once the restrictions are lifted. And I think You know, a lot of students have recognised how much effort has gone into providing ongoing education and lectures online, how much a university is going to continue to provide that kind of learning. Um, And just in general, 
I think COVID has kind of posed a really big question for university education in general and how students feel about the the cost benefit of the education they're receiving, particularly when it comes to things like university accommodation and, and obviously tuition fees. So I can imagine that there will be some thinking and maybe some campaigning around what students need and want and the people responsible for university education will have to do a lot of thinking about that. Journalist um, Alicia Kalik said when when the announcement was made on Twitter that it was very convenient that Johnson is opening non-essential retail and gyms on the exact same date that Ramadan begins. Has, has Britain's Muslim community been completely swizzled here and, you know, should the rest of us stay out of restaurants in solidarity with them? This is honestly one of the worst things that Boris Johnson has ever personally done to me. Like, I feel very personally victimised by him right now. You know, I have been so desperate to get back to the gym. But um, look, no, we haven't been let down here because ultimately Ramadan is about community, about reflection and about charity. And it's a really beautiful time of year for Muslims that we we all look forward to at least this time, we have a vague sense of what's going to happen and we can prepare for it rather than like an overnight government announcement on yeah. Twitter. I think that's the the really important thing. And actually, you know, all being well, restaurants will be open to break our fasts with bubbles yeah. or households, which I'm sure a lot of people will do and which will also support Muslim-owned businesses. And then, you know, rule of six probably means that we can have small Eid celebrations outdoors places of worship have um will have less rigid restrictions than the last ramadan so people appreciate a bit more flexibility around prayers but i think if you really want to act in solidarity uh entertain your muslim mates in the hours after work while they're waiting for their fast to break because that is the absolute worst period of time those three hours are terrible while you're very hungry and have nothing to do for three or four hours or just uh, make a donation to charity in, in the true spirit of Ramadan. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's a lovely thing. I can't remember the name of the charity, but there's one that supports LGBTQ Muslims, um, and I will get the name of it and tweet it after the show because uh, I think that that is, you know, a, a really, really important charity to back, and you've now given me a very good reminder that I should give them an extra donation as we go into Ramadan. It's um, probably the um, Inclusive Mosque Initiative. Probably, yes, that does sound right. Thank you. Um, Ros, there's a lot of things that can still go wrong. Um, There's this kind of it's nearly over effect. People can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Do you think that sort of talking up the roadmap and how close we are now to to being released into the wild might make people even more lax on social distancing, you know, even particularly between now and then? I don't think it will. And I'll tell you why, actually, because I think although Johnson talks about data not dates that's just uh, crappy alliteration you know it's pretty meaningless the fact is though that you have to have dates partly because people can't plan without them businesses can't plan without them and you've got to have hope and I think that encourages people to stick to the rules because they can see an end point I don't know about everybody else in this panel but psychologically I found it hardest when there is huge uncertainty and there's not a plan that's when I just lose it when I can't see the end there's no date there's no uh, and I and I really f- just fall into despair, and that's why I think actually having a date w- will help people to hold on till then. I also think that the nearly over effect will not be such a big driver of people easing up as vaccination itself. Having been vaccinated myself now, 
Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, And, you know, not, don't have, don't have, uh, you know, anything like uh, the maximum immunity yet because it's only been six days. And, you know, don't worry, I'm not doing anything bad. But (laughs) once you know that you have got it, the temptation is really much greater. And that will, and as more and more people get vaccinated, that will, will play a big part as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Next up, we spend so much time thinking about COVID and Brexit that we might as well call them Brexford or Coxit. But <laughs> really, that's, that's not good. That's not good. That was gold. But what else should we be thinking about? What other big issues will we have to deal with once this particular fog lifts? Well, we thought we'd choose some elephants in the room, spell out the problems and see how we can fix them. And we've chosen one each. And first up, it's Minnie. Minnie, what's your elephant in the room? Um, I actually very cheekily have two elephants in the room and Mm. they are both interrelated because they're both parts of the hostile environment for migrants. Um, So my first elephant in the room is that we have a population of between 600,000 to 1.2 million undocumented people living in the UK who have absolutely no way to become documented. So you have to have been here for 20 years before you can apply for a status. And they're living here, working here, they've got family and friends, and realistically, they aren't going anywhere. So I think it's really important that we rethink routes to settlement completely and how we allow people to document themselves. And there are like several ways to do this including allowing people to legally work without documentation, which they do in many EU countries and which would allow them to be visible, to access work support and and to unionise. And related to that, the second one is no recourse to public funds. Now, I think people will have heard of this one and we've definitely talked about it before, Mm. but it screams out to me at this particular point in time in a crisis because the government is doing absolutely nothing about it and it's just going to continue to get worse and worse for people and it's really not cost effective for a government that's kind of struggling under the pressures of of, uh, a health crisis and an economic crisis. So you have a huge number of migrants here legally and who are undocumented who can't get access to the public safety net. Lots of people are losing their jobs. People who were previously fine will now need to rely on support but just can't get it and the problem is that local authorities have a duty to intervene when someone becomes destitute so what the government is is doing is saying let people become destitute then a council will intervene and we won't give them any extra money for it and it seems so nonsensical not to allow people to access something like universal credit so they can get back on their feet rather than waiting for them to become destitute before they can get support. So I just wanted to talk about that one. Yeah, I mean, it does seem mad given that, you know, all of the evidence and research shows that that immigrants are such wealth creators and, you know, net contributors. I'm really interested in what you said about um, if you're undocumented, you you know, you've got 20 years before you can can make an application. But how on earth do you prove the 20 years if you've been pretty much undocumented and kind of off-grid for all of that time? 
Yeah, exactly. It's incredibly, incredibly hard for people um, who have been in the country for a really long period of time, especially because access to lawyers is is um, is so limited for people too. So actually, what you find is people just don't make an application, even when they have a right to at kind of 20 years and immigration processes aren't exactly uh, easy. And, you know, this is something that Boris Johnson actually supported when he was London mayor in a kind of in, in a way that I wouldn't do it, but his basic point was that, that we've got a whole bunch of people who can't, who could be paying taxes and could contribute to the visible economy, but we just don't like max out on their ability basically because they're they're so far underground. So, you know, there is kind of an economic argument there, even though, you know, migrants are much more than an economic benefit. And and is there a danger as well that, that some of these people might be fearful of registering with a GP and then being able to get the vaccine um, because yeah. of their undocumented status? Yeah, absolutely. There's so much evidence, um, even before the, the pandemic, of, um, of migrants feeling afraid to come forward to access healthcare. And, and we actually, JCWI, released a report a few weeks ago which reiterated that a lot of people, even when they have the right status, one, either don't know that they can go to a GP and just generally are fearful that their data will be shared with the Home Office, which sadly does happen in secondary care. And we've seen lots of examples of, of migrants accessing healthcare and having their data shared with the Home Office and subsequently used against them. But just to reiterate here, everyone in the country, regardless of status, has access to a GP and is able to get the vaccine. So um, people shouldn't be afraid to come forward for that. Ian, your elephant is prison policy. Tell us more. Uh, oh, well, it's uh, fucked. Uh, I don't know if this will surprise you in any way. It wasn't ever in a great place. And then uh, a chap came along who you may have heard of called uh, Chris Grayling. And he yeah. catastrophically fucked it into the ground in a way from which it has never recovered. <laughs> so, it, I mean, really, this is, this is 2012 onwards, right? And you're getting austerity cuts. You massively cut down on funding. You you have these bulging prisons from the classic sort of Tory fire and brimstone approach towards criminal justice. And what we got and what we have seen every fucking quarter since that took place, uh, up until the beginning of the pandemic, is increases in assaults on other from prisoner on prisoner, increases in assaults uh, towards prison guards, and increases of assaults on themselves on, in self harm. So, in, in every conceivable metric of trying to create a, a place in which people might be rehabilitated and in which you could reduce reoffending, we instead take people and just traumatize them further by indifference and neglect. Now, suddenly, then the pandemic comes along, and you have a fucking chance to do things completely differently. Like right now. The prison population in this country is 77,896, okay? Now, that is way lower than we've had it for a long time. And the reason for that is because the court system first closed and now is still struggling to get up to speed. And you get an opportunity then to try and do the thing that we know works. And this is the thing that just fucking drives me crazy on prison policy because there's plenty of areas of politics where it's actually really quite hard to work out what to do. You've got competing rights or, or we just don't have the data. Actually, the evidence on sort of criminal justice always points in the same directions. You want small local prisons so that prisoners can maintain family contact and you want to train and educate them in the prison so they can maintain work outside. This is the thing. This is the solution for reoffending. It's not easy, but it's the solution is you get people to invest in their family and in their work. And that is what does it. Now, 
if you put big centralized prisons away from their community, the first part doesn't work. If you just chuck them into this pit of violence where there's no services in order to train them up or move them between prisons where one prison teaches, you know, bricklaying and another one teaches plumbing, then you don't have any time to train them up. This is the effect that we get. So right now we have the opportunity, but are the government going to take it? Are they fucked? Because already the plans are there for building four more big prisons, massively increasing the number of prison partners, uh, prison places. Dominic Cummings, before he left, uh, really just before the 2019 election, scribbled down some fucking numbers on the back of a pad on increasing sentencing and cutting out sort of halfway sentences, predominantly because he knew that that would appeal to the Red Wall voters. He knew that Leave voters were more likely to support punishment, that it would be quite a powerful argument for them. And now that's what's going to get implemented. So the, the, the elephant is... One of the good things of the pandemic, one of the few good things you can imagine, is that it presented us with an opportunity to finally fix our prison system. And they are about to do the exact opposite. And to what extent do you think there's overlap here with reforming drug policy? I mean, there's overlap in the sense that it's just consistent failure. Again and again, the the public have moved on drug reform. We don't see any leadership on that issue from the mm. political class and pretty much none of the parties, apart from, I no, guess, you're right. the, the Lib Dem. You're right. And the, the, the public have moved on on that in a way they probably haven't on penal reform. Um, and, you know, there's some sort of you know, very worrying polls out there around bringing back uh, capital punishment and things like that. So how, how would you, if you were in charge of implementing this policy, uh, making sure that this elephant in the room was actually acknowledged, how would you get the, the, the great British public on board with it? You see, the thing is, I don't think these arguments are hard for people to grasp. And in fact, you know what? We've actually got track record on this. When Tony Blair was running to be prime minister, the slogan was tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Now, you can still focus your political messaging on the fact that you're going to be tough on, you know, murder, you know, the the stuff that we're really scared of. And at the same time, you can say, we also understand people who find themselves in these situations or very often have mental health problems, very often mm-hmm. are from poorer backgrounds, very often uh, struggle with literacy. So we're going to put in place a plan to try and fix that. Now, the key to that, I think, is to prevent this disconnect that happens with the public. When the public think about hospitals or schools, they think, that is shit that I use. You know, my kids go to the school, I have to go to the hospital, so I care about this. When it comes to prisons, they think, I have zero intention of fucking ending up there, so this is nothing to do with me. But that is not the scenario to think about. The scenario to think about is if you get mugged that, and that person had been to prison previously, you are now the victim, not just of them, but of the state's failure to rehabilitate offenders. So it is in your interest that we follow the fucking evidence on how to do that, that we don't just respond to fire and brimstone stuff. Then on the flip side, we get the chance to speak on these other issues and to do so on a reasonable, rational and empirical basis. One of the many terrible things about this pandemic has been the way that long prison sentences have been thrown around in the most ludicrous way. I mean, the idea that you should be jailed for a decade, a decade because you don't quarantine after coming back from a country. It is just like, how did they even come up? I mean, 10 years, Mm. it's, it's it's the sentence for a rape. Uh, It is completely disconnected from any kind of reality. It ceases to have any meaning the prison sentence, when you use it like that and when you deploy it like that. And that has been really terrible to see. Ros, tell us about your elephant in the room, though, because it, it isn't it isn't penal reform. No, it isn't. It's the uh, gig economy, which has uh, 
become much more much more salient uh, in the last week or so with the Supreme Court ruling that you may have heard about. Uh, basically, the Supreme Court ruled that Uber was Uber drivers were not self-employed and that therefore they were entitled to things like sick pay, holidays, minimum wage, which self-employed people are not generally entitled to. And this has massive, massive ramifications, not just for Uber drivers, but for people in all kinds of these kind of new jobs which have proliferated in the last decade, like delivery drivers. And basically it exposes a massive problem we have at the moment with the employed self-employed distinction it's now unfit for purpose because big employers many employers not just big ones are exploiting it for their own purposes in order to avoid giving workers their due so the question is what we do about this now and how we react to this ruling and what the government decides to do and if it decides to continue on this path that we've seen for the past decade of encouraging the growth of these Mm. jobs in the name of deregulation, in the name of creating jobs quickly, which hasn't actually helped us in terms of productivity. Britain's productivity is still rubbish. Yeah, Despite all these barely regulated jobs, they're not actually growing our economy. So are we going to continue down the route of allowing them to proliferate? Or are we going to say, no, actually, we want to be the kind of country where when you get a new job, you are entitled to basic things. And we've seen during the pandemic that the problems when people aren't entitled to sick leave and sick pay, mm, what that leads to. <laughs> Transmission goes up because they exactly. stay home. Yeah. Uh, and it's a personal tragedy for people when they don't have access to these basic rights. And what would you do? <laughs> I would reinvent the whole idea of being employed and self-employed. I think you need to totally shake that up and just have create basic basic rights that all people working for a certain number of hours a week and try and stop people exploiting that loophole by ensuring by, by pinning down what exactly working means because it it doesn't just mean when you're driving someone around in a cab for example it means when you're waiting around for a job uh, you are entitled to certain rights and one of the things you have to do as well is not just create new laws but you have to enforce them there's actually a job called Director of Labour Market Enforcement. If you can believe it, that job is part-time at the moment. <laughs> and and it, is, it is going to be unfilled shortly because it was occupied by Matthew Taylor, who was uh, an advisor to Tony Blair. And he has stepped down. Uh, his job was advertised in November. Nobody has yet been appointed to replace him. He offered to carry on working for nothing. <laughs> Irony of ironies, to carry on doing the job. <laughs> that offer has been rejected. That's an incredible story. <laughs> that offer has been rejected. So there is as yet nobody else in post. And as I say again, this is a part-time job. So there is actually a limit to what you can anyway do to enforce these laws. But it's important when you create laws to ensure that they're going to be followed. And we have been very bad at doing that, not just in things like Uber, but in, for example, with gangmasters and workers, um, workers on farms 
who mm. have been routinely exploited. Well, my elephant in the room is um, the reform of state-funded faith schools. Mm. Um, so listeners who don't know, um, faith, state-funded faith schools are allowed exemptions from the law around discrimination. So they are allowed to discriminate in their admissions policies, um, which basically means that particularly if they're oversubscribed, they can say no to any child applying for a place at that school if they don't uh, conform to the the faith of of that school. Obviously, the vast majority of faith schools in the UK are Church of England. Uh, There's a significant number of Catholic schools as well, but but there are other religions covered too. And uh, this is, for me, you know, as somebody who suffered a sectarian education in Northern Ireland growing up there, absolutely fundamental to the kind of society and the kind of vision that we want for Britain uh, as as internationalists, as um, progressives for for our country. Because if you are separating children at aged four or five and they are not exposed to friends of other faiths or none, then you are essentially uh, creating a sectarian environment. And we don't allow other state-funded organizations to discriminate on the basis of faith. We don't have uh, Christian-only hospitals or Muslim-only town halls. Uh, you know, it, it is a- absolutely ridiculous to consider that there might only be a, a local authority library that allowed Jews and no one else. You know, it's, it's, it's insane. And it, it really helps um, stoke up division, resentment, fear. Uh, of people of other faiths. If you have been to school and made friends with people from different backgrounds, you are so much less likely to believe any QAnon or anti-Semitic nonsense or Islamophobic tropes that you get exposed to later in life because it just won't resonate as being credible with you because it won't, uh, you know, be familiar to your own experience. So uh, for me, I think we are storing up big problems for the future um, because there are more and more faith schools opening over time that that are state funded. Um, And I think this is in no small part, um, you know, driving xenophobia across the country. And I think it needs to end and it shouldn't be funded by the taxpayer um, and we need to reform and make them abide by the kinds of discrimination laws, anti-discrimination laws that, that other employers and other organisations have to abide by. And I think that's an incredibly important issue that n- very few people are talking about. Mm-hmm. I won't say none because there are some, but not enough. Here, here. Before we finish up, we've got time for the return of our semi-regular feature, Overrated Underrated, where one of our panel chooses someone or something that gets far too much praise and attention and someone or something who deserves many more props than they're getting. And this week, Ian is going to be giving us his Overrated Underrated. What have you chosen? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think I may have fucked this up because I don't know if by thing we include concept. I thought you were going to say comics for a second. <laughs> no, come on. Well, actually, that's, that's actually quite tempting. But no, no. Okay. Oh, no. Here's my thing. Overrated, quality, Oscar-worthy political movies. So I'm thinking right now <laughs> of I mean, several objects come through. So one of them is Lincoln. I mean, basically the Steven Spielberg one. Steven Spielberg's a fucking genius director, as long as he's not making a political film. And then as soon as he makes the political films, he's like, well, I better make this terribly fucking boring because that's the only way that it's respectable. Lincoln 
fucking Lincoln. I, I remember there's like a point in Lincoln where I was thinking, like, I think I can see the hairs on my arm growing. That's how like slow, like just time <laughs> slipping into my body. The same with like the, I'm sorry, but the same with the post, which I enjoyed at the time and then the cinema and then saw it when I hadn't had half a bottle of wine and thought, fuck me, this is tedious. <laughs> same with like, you know, Bridges Spies, apart from that one scene in the cafe, which is quite good, but the rest of it's boring as fuck. Now, compare that to the thing that's underrated, genre movies with a political message, which are mm. generally much more sophisticated, much more intelligent, much more radical and pack much more of a punch than the Oscar-worthy stuff. So I'm thinking, first of all, I mean, I, in lockdown, the infinite period of lockdown where it's possible to watch literally every film that's ever been made, <laughs> we, we did the whole, the, the recent Planet of the Apes trilogy, directed by sort of Rupert Wyatt and Matt Reeves. Th- that trilogy, the modern one, is so fucking good and it's so intelligent on the ideas of tribalism and especially the way that the bad actors within a tribe have a dynamic with sort of against each other with the other tribe that brings the the good thinking actors in the tribe into animosity with one another the kind of inevitability of the deterioration of relations between groups it is so fucking smart and yet it's dynamic it's exciting it's action-packed you could say the same thing about children of men classically that was the one i was just about to say actually interesting i mean just one of the smartest um treatments of the british attitude towards immigration and simultaneously i think just a shattering of that complacent british sense of oh we'd never have been nazis ourselves i mean it's just not in us we're just not like that (laughs) and very recently in fact last night we watched um his house which is a, a british horror movie um featuring a refugee who who comes to london it takes asylum housing policy and the, the sort of trauma of, of the journey, you know, trying to, to get to sort of somewhere safe and tr- treats them as, as horror movie tropes in this powerfully effective way that does much more than most of the sort of really respectable films I've seen tackling that subject. Over and over, my overrated is respectable political movies. My underrated is good old sci-fi action horror genre movies that have something to say politically. Well, you are preaching to the converted with me. Where can I watch, where can I watch his house? Which which platform? You know what? It's on it's on Netflix right now. Oh, great, great! Yeah. It is so good. I totally agree with you. Amazing film. It's, it's just genius and genuinely brave at several moments, and it's also like a really effective horror movie that sh- fucking sketched me the fuck out <laughs> on numerous occasions. Well, we've reached the end of the show now because I need to go and watch His House on Netflix. Uh, But we do still have time for But Your Emails. Um, This week, Neil Champion says, I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to continue posting the same question until you get Ian to answer it. Can he do a quick compare and contrast of the trade and commercial relationships that the UK now has with the EU and those between Switzerland and the EU? Wow, dude, you have got to get better life goals. Like, I can't stress this enough, man. Someone needs to intervene on that shit. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, really. I mean, okay, I mean, you know, the Swiss relationship with the EU is a series of bilateral treaties, but it connects Switzerland to the EU. Now, when there's a change, you know, in the law, in the EU law, you get these mixed committees that get together from the Swiss side, from the Commission side, and they work it out and interpret it down. Um, and then in other cases, there's some dynamic alignment. So fundamentally, it's about hitching yourself to the boat. Um, the British plan with the EU is sort of pretty much exactly the opposite, which is, you know, how do we unhitch? And what, what are the repercussions of unhitching? 
there are certain sort of similarities. I mean, the EU always operates in, in a pretty similar way, which is trying to maximize the consequences of divergence, which you get in the Swiss case, right? The, the Swiss have all these rights to, oh, you don't have to do it. But of course, if you don't update yourself with this law, then the whole fucking agreement falls down and you wouldn't want that, would you? It's the kind of, you know, the mm. EU approach of putting a, the horse's head in your bed. Um, and you can see a similar sort of thing going on with the, the kind of areas of the agreement that are affected in the Brexit deal. That there may also be a possible secondary similarity, which is that if you look at the Swiss People's Party, the sort of UKIP of, of Switzerland, has made tremendous, has had tremendous success using the complexity, and it's fiendishly, fu- it's basically impenetrable. Like the, the Swiss EU relations and the deals are, are completely impenetrable to any normal person, and frankly, to many of the experts. And, and they can use that to keep on pushing that resentment of the EU. And it's possible, and I think you, I'd point you towards Rafael Bayer's piece recently in The Guardian that's sort of making this point, that actually you could get a similar thing of just this mercurial, technical, confusing thing that most people won't understand in the withdrawal agreement with the EU would, could fulfill a similar function for Eurosceptics in, in Britain. All that's left is to thank our panel today. Thank you, Minnie. Thanks, everyone. Ian. Thank you. Roz. Thank you. And me, because, you know, why not? Um, (laughs) And and thanks to our listeners uh, for joining us today. If you back us on Patreon, you get a whole nother slice of the podcast after the music and a personal shout out alongside our theme song, which is, as always, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And here we have a few more very patient backers who have been languishing in the mystery spreadsheet for the past year. Hello and thanks for your patience to Hazel, Yvonne Hewitt, Julio Gotti, David Turnbull and Christopher Oxford. A special thanks to David Turnbull because he is actually my husband uh, and has finally turned up in the Patreon list. Well done, David. This is how the money cycles through the pots. This is amazing. <laughs> Did he tell you he was doing that? Uh, he, I think he mentioned he was a Patreon because he was going to be a t-shirt early on but I, I didn't actually sort of remember it or anything so uh, it was quite a surprise to see him turning yeah. up there uh, yeah it was, it was it's touching um, hello from me and many thanks to Sally Costick Ollie Mansell Gabby Johnny Roche and David P greetings from me to India Masters Lara Bear Sue Hooper Catriona Doris and Greg Barron And from me, it's a big thanks to Paul Garner, James Patterson, Hayden Phillips, Mike Studd and David Corbett. We'll see you next week. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Naomi Smith. With Ian Dunt, Minnie Rahman and Roz Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison and the assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovic. Audio production was by me, Robin Lieburn, and Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Hello and welcome to the exclusive roped-off VIP area that is the extra bit of Oh God, What Now, especially for Patreon backers. And this week, we're talking about space. We've all seen the images of Mars from the Perseverance rover and noticed that, well, Space really does just look like an old episode of Doctor Who, i.e. it just looks like a quarry. Um, And we've all read how the entire budget to get Perseverance 125 million miles to Mars and send back pictures was only a tenth of the cost of a Dido Harding test and trace program that doesn't work.
Meanwhile, the government has just announced a space bridge to Australia to share investment and knowledge in the space economy. But are we inspired to go where humankind has never gone before? Or should we just sort it out on planet Earth first? So, Roz, do you sort of fancy being an astronaut? Not in the least, Naomi. I, I have to say, <laughs> space bores me senseless. I, I, it's not just lockdown. It's, it's always been like that. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I prefer Doctor Who to Star Trek. I mean, to me, to me space is only interesting if there are aliens in it. I have to say the, the actual uh, the, the physical presence of space does not intrigue me very much at all. So I was very intrigued by the possibility of uh, that, that strange meteorite-like object that was passing on the edge of the solar system recently. called I think it was called Umamamal or something like that. And uh, it's there, there does seem to be increasing evidence that there could be something quite alien about it. And that does fascinate me. It really does. But I was watching the footage, which... That was a taster mentioned. of the extended edition of this week's show. If you'd like a little bit more, oh, God, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we will appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>